Hello and welcome to the Fat Town Thoughts podcast. My name's Stephen Dickens. I'm your co-host as always, and I'm joined by my dear friend, Jared Clee. Welcome to the show, Jared. Hey, Stephen. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. End of the week. Always good. So we're on to episode 12. Still can't believe we've managed to do 12 episodes. We're cover for those who are new to the show we're covering the 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 workings of money fintech crypto um so really sort of broad range of topics this week jared has convinced me we're going to talk about sex for 30 minutes um so this should we be are, an interesting we are we are it's Stephen. we we spend so much time and i'm so enthusiastic about the 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 innovation happening in financial services the ability to then expand access to financial services to more people to lower the cost of using it and so on. And yet I think we do a disservice if we don't then also cover where is it screwing up? Where Mm -hmm. is it just simply failing to serve its very purpose of capital allocation? And while, while we think perhaps kind of without digging in the, we'll call it the adult industry as one giant thing it turns out there's a lot of nuance to what happens underneath. And there are businesses like sexual wellness that we're about to dive into that just get lumped in, even though they have characteristics that look nothing like the rest of the adult industry. Yeah. And I think, uh, and for those of you new to the show, Jared writes a newsletter every week. We'll put the link in the show notes below. Very highly recommend you go and read that that's the topics we're going to be covering on the podcast this week. And I think I obviously always read this as prep for our podcasts, but I think it was fascinating for me as you broke down the barriers to entry for finance, how to, the VC perspective, how do you go raise money as the founder of a vibrator company? You know, there's nuances within what we mean as the sex industry, everything from things that are completely abhorrent and nobody wants any part of with with sensible um, forethought, right through to companies that, like I saw in the um, halls of CES, who are almost selling wellness products that are B2C, physical devices, you know, app connected, you know, fantastic innovation going on in that space that I saw at CES that are a million miles away from the the sort of other things in that sex industry. And you would think they would be able to bank, collect payments and do those things like any other B2C business. But what came from the newsletter was that they're not. So let's for the listeners who maybe haven't read the newsletter yet, go do that. You know, don't stop listening to the podcast or or watching us on YouTube. Give us 30 minutes and then go read the newsletter. But seriously, get us orientated here for our listeners and and, and kind of get us started. So start starting with kind of the big category that the sexual wellness gets lumped into. And and so so we have what we'll call it the adult industry. Most of what we think when, when we hear the word word adult industry, most of, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is is pornography. Generally, that is certainly the largest in terms of revenue. And while we don't have good numbers, Stephen, on on the on uh, the size of the industry, it's in the many many tens of billions of dollars. It's an order of magnitude 
kind of rough estimates, bigger than Hollywood. You're, you're of your top 10 most visited websites, two of them are uh, pornography sites. Collectively, those two websites, if you add it up, would be the third most visited site in the world on a monthly basis. And, and when I say third most visited, you're talking Google, then the Facebook, Instagram, then pornography. I mean, the, the size of this is absolutely enormous. So, so let's pause there for a moment. Obviously, they're trying to monetize those clicks and those views. You know, without incriminating myself, I can probably guess the name of one of those sites. You know, let's pick on Pornhub. Well, they're, they're the largest in the space. and, and So, so they, where do they go and bank? So this it's it's a it's an interesting question. Let's break that down. There and I'm blanking on the name right now. The parent company behind Pornhub is actually a fascinating story. They, they, there's there's some seediness here, which we which actually we'll, we'll come back to in a sec. That has become a massive conglomerate. So Pornhub is one brand. It's one of ten or fifteen brands that's held by a holding company. That holding company about a decade ago, realized that the pornography industry was incredibly fragmented. And yet from an advertising standpoint, from a bundling standpoint, there's tremendous economies of scale. If you can start to cross-sell, upsell, et cetera, you can start to target different websites with different branding at different niches, so on and so forth. What they did is they went and they rolled up a whole bunch of different brands, and it's now owned by one holding company who's allocating capital across them. That has since changed ownership. Last I knew, it was owned by a, uh, a Canadian person who's tried to stay out of the limelight for obvious reasons. Um, but Stephen, I, I, I start there because they are, first off, they're highly profitable. So at this point, they generally are okay with limited access to banking where they struggle is in payments. So if they're taking subscribers, typically that's gonna be via a credit card. Really the pornography industry has kind of earned its reputation as high risk generally. Now there's nuance there. There, there. I'm sure there are sites that are not high risk, but on the average, pornography has been high risk. And reason being is that if, if you are a bank providing financing or, or just basic uh, accounts, or if you're Visa or MasterCard facilitating payments or the payment processor, uh, like a Fiserv further upstream, you take on risk in two different areas. One, if that site is hosting content that is illegal, child pornography, for instance, you, if you know that or could reasonably have known that, take on risk that they are facilitating transactions that are fraudulent, illegal, et cetera. And then you as the as the financing payments, et cetera, company, you're going to get fined. The, the second part, which frankly is the more challenging one for the payments industry, is his, at least historically, pornography has had a much higher rate of chargebacks and fraud, meaning somebody subscribes to a website, then calls up the credit card company a week, a month later and says, hey, I didn't actually pay for that, or it turned out to be a fake credit card or the like. Oftentimes, and, and this is anecdotal evidence, but oftentimes what's happening is somebody subscribes, somebody else they're related to finds out about it. They're looking to deny that they actually made the purchase and they either go and just cancel the credit card outright so they can't be charged anymore, 
or they call up the charge and attempt to dispute it. So, so as a result, if we start with kind of the high level adult industry and we focused on pornography, pornography, at least historically, has earned a real reputation for high risk, not because we, we can talk about the societal views of it. Put that to the side. We've actually got real fundamental challenges that even ignoring societal views, it is an unusually high risk business if you're payments, financing, et cetera. And I think that's probably something I should have said as a disclaimer. We're not going to make any social commentary on the pros and cons of any of the products or services that we're talking about. We're purely talking about how the financial services industry services those particular customers. So we're Correct. Not- and and, and I, I, have, I have my personal views. The place I would start, Stephen, is from a legal, from a regulatory standpoint in the U.S. today, these are legal industries. You are allowed to go do it. We have restrictions, no child pornography and so on. You have to have consent to post videos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we, these are above board. These, Regardless of how you personally feel, we, current, we allow them in the U.S. today, and therefore they should be treated like any other business we allow in the U.S. today. Yeah, if you want to go and have fantastic legal counsel, put the right terms and conditions on your website, do everything above board. As I say, it's not about whether you agree that that content should be available. If you want to go and run the best organized, most regulatory compliant porn site, you're allowed to. Correct. So, so-, so let's bounce from there. Because I think we've talked about, you know, we're talking about the sex industry as a kind of broad topic. Let's go one level down into maybe sexual wellness, because I think that gets worse for me. Based sexual on wellness, it's, 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 it's a troubling one because it, it's, porn, while pornography, is, as I said, has, has kind of earned a reputation as being high risk, sexual wellness has not. And yet, by virtue purely of association, it gets lumped in. And so, so let's break down sexual wellness for a moment. It's about a $10 billion industry today. It's growing at, you'll call it 5 6% a year. I would highlight that if we go look at some of the names in the space, they're enormous. And the reason I, I highlight that is that $10 billion market number, we're probably massively undercounting. Now, if you historically have been discriminated against by the financial system and so on, the last thing you're going to go do is go talk to an analyst and say, hey, look at me, look how big I am. You're going to attract unwanted attention. Well, there's, there's, I mean, in our industry, the guys at IDC do a great job of tracking market size. You know, all of the vendors, you know, the PC industry, Canalis do a same, a similarly excellent job tracking mobile phone shipments. You know, there is established businesses that make a living from tracking industry size, market share statistics, market share growth projections, you know, overall market size. I can't imagine there's a business that takes that same kind of independent, I don't want to say audit, but independent perspective of the size and market demographics of the sexual wellness industry. Not not really. No, you're, you're, you're so spot on. My, my point and, and the thread I'm on there is, if it's self-reported numbers and there's no incentive to report those numbers and there's no trusted third party counting the numbers, then we don't have numbers. Correct. 
our best estimates are probably a fraction of what the actual industry mm -hmm. is. So if it's a $10 billion industry and you and I have just concluded in 30 seconds that there's no reliable numbers, it's probably some factor of that 10 billion is the right answer. So, so I, I would say some multiple of mm -hmm. that number. Yeah. Um, so, so if, but if you look at kind of breakdown, which let's assume the breakdown is reasonably accurate, about 85% of the sexual wellness industry is uh, sex toys and, and related paraphernalia. The other 15% is made up of condoms and, and uh, related, uh, uh, related protection and primarily lubricants. So and that industry, that 15%, I mean, I don't track that particular part of the industry, but I'm assuming that's sold by big household names, the P&Gs, the Unilevers, you know, and they're able to obviously get finance and access to the market. Correct. And and I would... I don't know who owns Durex as a brand these days, but I'm assuming it's P&G or they're Unilever. Owned by a large public. Yeah. So... What I would highlight within that, Stephen, and we're going to get into this a couple different times, there is tremendous bias in what gets approved to be financed. And as a kind of general finger in the air way of explaining it, if it is sold to uh, to heterosexual males, you're almost certainly you're far more likely to get approved whether it's advertising or financed or payments or the like, if you are selling to any other demographic, you are far less likely to get the approvals you want. And ju just to take one very straightforward example here, um, most, in most uh, health insurance in the U.S. will pay for erectile dysfunction uh, medicine and, and, and uh, related stuff. If the, the equivalent for women does not get funded by insurance today in the U.S., that that is, I mean, we're, we're not talking about, oh, this ad, this ad, not that ad, which we will get into. We have bias there as well. We're talking basic medical need. We have remarkable discrimination in terms of what does and doesn't get approved. It, it's Fundamentally, it's institutionalized in insurance, in advertising, in financing. It's across the entire board. And that is a massive hurdle for, for the industry to overcome as it looks to expand sex toys and so on. So let, let's take an example. I, I mentioned I was out at the Consumer Electronics Show meeting with some fintech companies. Um, they were in the South Hall a sexual wellness, which was an interesting experience. I turned up early for one of my meetings. The, the gentleman I was meeting with couldn't meet with me, so I just went for a wander. I'm walking around, you know, smart toilets, and probably the largest booth in this hall was a company called Satisfier. So I'll pick on those guys. App-connected, you know, sex toys, basically. Fantastic. Had walked onto the booth, don't know that space, just generally interested. I'm glad I did ahead of this call and this podcast. So let, let, let's let's pick on Satisfier to just kind of make this more specific. Looked a well-run business. Booth looked substantial, as I mentioned. You know, 100 products in the range. You know, looked like they'd been in business for a number of years. You know, well-run, well-structured, innovative approach to B2C 
product sales. So let's let's pick on them as a as a way to sort of round this in a particular example. I'm the CEO and CFO. You know, you're the CFO of Satisfier. Who do we bank with? Who do, handles transactions on our website when when we want to sell one of these hundred and fifty dollar products to somebody who's legally able to buy one in in every state in the U.S. Just break me down that model and sort of talk to the barriers that, that a company like Satisfy, and I don't know whether that's the parent or whether that's the brand, but but let's use them as an example to sort of unpack the barriers. You know, and they could have been, they were in the same booth as somebody selling smart toilets. You know, so let's assume that the business model is the same for smart toilets as it is for for app connected vibrators just for a moment and sort of compare and contrast we want to run a smart toilets business nobody has any problems with that as a business versus the the bias that exists if we want to sell app connected vibrators for a moment so starting with the marketing side and we'll move back into to how you build a business you mentioned ces CES is a uh, consumer electronics show out in Las Vegas. It's one of the largest uh, conferences in the world, period. How many, pe- Stephen, how many people are there? You gave me the number before. In a normal year, about 170,000. Last week, 44,000. Yeah, the 170. Estimates. I mean, that, that is just massive. And interesting, you're not allowed to sell on the shop, on the show floor. So this booth was packed. They had a giveaway. I think it was two o'clock in the afternoon. I was there at sort of one thirty. The line was round the hall already for people queuing up for a free giveaway at two o'clock. So they so were the what, busiest booth in a huge hall with household names. So what's CES is a particularly interesting one. They, they categorize it generally as sex tech. Go back to twenty eighteen. Uh, blanking on the company, won an Innovator Award, CES Innovators Award, for a new sex toy. CES then rescinded the award when they found out what it was. There was a massive blow up in the media. The CES then reversed that, gave the award back to them, and the subsequent year in 2019 finally started to allow them onto the showroom floor and have slowly over the years been building up what you are now seeing as a more prominent position. But CES, until there was this massive blow up in the media and they they got slapped on the wrist quite hard, was fundamentally opposed to allowing what's, let's be very clear, is a direct-to-consumer, we're manufacturing goods business to present there perfectly legal, perfectly above board, simply because it has to deal with sex. Well, it's a consumer electronic device. Yes. You would think the consumer electronic show would be the perfect place to demonstrate said consumer electronic device. But it's a really good example of the, the structural oppositions to building this business. If we go look at other marketing places... Go look at uh, YouTube, can't advertise there. Go look at Facebook, can't advertise there. Go look at Instagram, can't advertise there. These are all massively cut off. Where this gets really troubling, Stephen, is even though your sex toys, which are primarily, not entirely, but primarily aimed at uh, women, you go look at the ads for something like HIMSS for erectile dysfunction, they are explicit. 
and they are all over the place, seemingly without any restrictions on their ability to go advertise. So while we have while we have standards for advertising on these massive platforms that generally prohibit, which I take issue with in the first place, because it's completely legal and above board, not only do we have standards that are a problem, we have inherent bias in how they're being enforced. Again, stuff that's being sold to men and primarily to heterosexual men is being allowed to fly through, whereas products focused on women are simply being shut down left and right. It's ridiculous. So let's, so let, so let's as I say, we, we, we'll frame this in the context of this company, Satisfyer. No endorsement of their products just happened to bounce onto their booth whilst I had a 20 minutes to kill at CES last week. So we want to... So, as I say, we're the CEO, CFO of, of Satisfyer. We want to go raise some money. You know, we want to expand into Europe. We want to go and expand into adjacent markets. Whatever the business strategy is, we want, and we need some money to go do that. Talk me through from a sort of mechanics and some of the barriers that are there. You know, let's step away from what the product is because that's immaterial for the purposes of this discussion. I'm in the sexual wellness space. And I want to go raise some money. It, how, would, it, how would that work? I, until very recently, and I mean last 24 months recently, Stephen, the answer was good luck. That the right answer was really go bootstrap the thing, figure out how to make it profitable on day one. If you go and apply to a bank and they get any any kind of hint that you are going to be selling into the sexual wellness space, you're highly impressed unlikely to get access to your basic bank account. If you are trying to go list a, a website, a new e-commerce store on Shopify, their terms prohibit you from using their payment options if you are selling, as they they explicitly call out, sex toys. If you want to go use Stripe as a payment processor, they prohibit you from using them as a payment processor. We are talking about the very basics, the biggest platforms to go launch a, a, an online store and sell to consumers and the like, you are just fundamentally cut off. If we go talk about venture capital, Stephen, most so, so venture capitalists raise money from what become limited partners. Part of the underlying there is you have a limited partner agreement that describes uh, what you're going to invest in, how the fund's going to work, et cetera. Most of those limited partner agreements have what's called a vice clause. And it says, we will not invest in these sets of industries. If you look at someone, a brand name like Sequoia, Sequoia in, in this public knowledge, Notre Dame, the Catholic university in the US is, one of, is a material investor in Sequoia and has been for years and years and years. You cannot imagine Sequoia going and sitting down with Notre Dame, a Catholic university, and saying, we see a great opportunity in sexual wellness. Can we amend the vice clause so we can go and invest in this industry? The, as a result, if, you are a, if you're trying to start a business here, go back two years, you're going to struggle to get an access to a bank. You're going to struggle to get access to payment processors. You're going to, even if you manage to find one, you're going to struggle to be able to use credit cards. You're going to struggle to find a website to host your store on. You're going to struggle to get investors. I mean, the, and then you get into, the, even assuming you get over those hurdles, we come back to the marketing problems. 
Dame in the in New York here just won a phenomenal battle. It they they wanted to go and advertise their products, which uh, primarily sex toys, uh, on the uh, on the uh, subway line in uh, in New York. The, the MTA, who, who uh, the government organ, New York government organization who manages the subway, said no. And credit where credit's due, Dame went and fought them for two years, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars later, and said, "Look, you guys allow elect- uh, you guys uh, allow uh, erectile dysfunction. You allow ads on breast augmentation, which you can imagine the the pictures that get attached to those things. You guys are allowing all of this stuff." Actually, they had an OK Cupid ad that had the tagline DTF, and then they changed what that st- stands for. But the images that went around that were very clear on what the dating app was trying to sell. And Dame fought them on it and said, "Look, we are trying to advertise sexual wellness in what was frankly fairly uh, conservative advertisements." And two years later, they finally won. So only like two months ago, Stephen, Dame and now other companies can finally start to advertise this in the subways. And this isn't some massive revolution. This is just barely getting them to parity with what's already being allowed to be advertised there. I mean, the, the hurdles are enormous. So so let's stay on Satisfyer. Let's stay on our use case. We do actually want to go raise some money. We've got a profitable business. We're... Got so some I, solid Steve, I want to number. interrupt. That part is key. That's been forced on the industry mm-hmm. because of the lack of financing, because of the lack of access to basic financial services. Most of these businesses, and I, I don't know Satisfier directly, but I know yeah. Dame has publicly said they were profitable pretty much on day one. Because you have to be. Had to be. Because so, you're so bootstrapping the business the profile. If you're applying to a bank, hi, we're a startup and we're already profitable. I mean, that that's exactly who you should want to bank. Well, yeah, I mean, in the same hall was the smart bed, you know, the eight sleeps and the and the those guys. And I'm imagining, you know, as I say, we'll stay on this on this particular example. The satisfier guys go to their bank. You know, we've been profitable from day one. We've got whatever growth statistics you know we've got we're bootstrapping this business without any outside investment if you just looked at those from raw numbers and just looked at that as an investment case all day long you're going to give a day one profitable business 10 out of 10 they're great businesses they're great businesses so so if you look at the structure why isn't anybody seeing i mean there's contrarian thinkers out there you talked about vice capital in the newsletter why is there not people with generational wealth or people who don't need to go and have voice clauses in order to be able to invest and go these are great businesses i'm gonna i'm gonna invest personally I'm obviously going to do my due diligence and I'm not going to, I'm going to take some, a more nuanced view of risk, but if it's B2C non-content, I'm going to invest. If it's electronic devices, you know, or lubricants or whatever it is that don't have the content implications that putting child pornography on a website would have, why is somebody not investing in this space? Why is there not the growth? Slowly, they're starting to. So the the biggest hurdle for venture capital to date 
has been the vice clauses. There is a bigger hurdle there that that's a bit more amorphous. Which, if you look at the if you look at the makeup of who are venture capitalists, it, it's mostly middle aged white men, and that's not really the audience who, at least in a general sense, has been paying attention and innovating in this market. Most of the builders you see founding startups, running the bigger startups, don't look like the people that are allocating funds in the venture capital world today. So that is that is a meaningful disconnect. And, and that's that's a structural hurdle we could talk about more generally in, in terms of uh, minority groups, in terms of disenfranchised groups. Well, I think there's they, a thread we'll come back to. As you said, most of these products and you know, broad generalization are targeting the female demographic. Female founders raise ridiculously less money right. than male founders. That's maybe a topic for a future newsletter, but that's a huge structural bias that goes on just generally with female founders. It's I, I, I completely agreed. It is a massive problem. It's one I think I agree. It's it's a whole nother topic, so we'll, we'll, we'll leave it for another day, but I agree. I don't, I don't want to let it go. It is a huge problem, and it shows up here among other places. If you are applying to a bank for kind of traditional bank financing alone, or you're applying just for banking services, let's go back a couple of years under uh, two administrations ago, um, starting in, in, in uh, 2013, we had what, the Justice Department in conjunction with a couple other government agencies moved ahead with what was called Operation Choke Point. And it was exactly what it sounds like. They formalized a program to cut off access to financial services for perfectly legitimate businesses by overwhelming them with expensive investigations and the like. They fundamentally, they weaponized the justice system to shut down businesses that were perfectly legal. They simply didn't like. This went on, Stephen, for years. It, it, it took about 18 months for it to come to light that this was going on. It took another four years until 2018 or so, sorry, 2017, for this to actually get shut down. I, I want to be very clear here. These were re legal businesses doing everything above board, and the Justice Department came in and put pressure on banks through expensive investigations to stop them from servicing the industry. This is a wild abuse of what the Justice Department is supposed to do. But it doesn't just stop when they say we've shut down the program. The hangover from that is has and will continue to extend for years. If you are a bank and you know that you may wake up tomorrow under a new administration who is not who is not favorably predisposed and some enthusiastic regulator decides to reinstate uh, Operation Choke Point, you're going to find that you own a book of business that all of a sudden is a huge liability. Well, why bother? Why just go? You can just go after other places that are lower risk. This does this has done extraordinary damage to an industry that was already being fundamentally uh, cut off from the system as a whole. And as I say, and, and we're not making any statements during this podcast of whether we think these products are any good, we're not endorsing any companies, we're not making any social commentary. We're just saying, you know, and, and I've picked the example of Satisfy, I don't know how they're run, I don't know their business, I don't know whether they're ethically minded. It seemed above board when I dropped into their booth, but I've not done the diligence for full, disclo full disclosure. But that's a B2C consumer electronic device. 
the fact that they're getting restricted access to the banking and payments rails just frankly to me seems insane. And and this, Stephen, it rolls the whole way up. So as we hit on, we said Stripe prohibits and Visa prohibits and so on. It really starts with the base banking industry, the most regulated. And as they get pressure to cut these off or categorize them as high risk, which generally means that even if they let you in, they charge you absurd fees that, that often make it unprofitable to operate. These then flow all the way upstream. So if you are facilitating payments, you're working with the bank, you're going to inherit the obligations of the bank to cut them off. If you're the payment processor who's facilitating the payment to the payment now, you're going to, these go all the way up. It, it's when you start at that base, and it was it was the fundamental hypothesis behind Operation Chokepoint, you can wreck the whole industry. But I, I want to turn to the positive here because we are finally, finally starting to see some, some changes here. We're starting to see some seed stage capital companies who are starting to fund this. For the most part, they're small. They're small because they're raising capital from people that historically they haven't been raised capital for or because they've gone out with the attitude of, I'm going to target investors who understand the opportunity. Now, this is fantastic if you're a venture capitalist you know you've got this massive barrier to entry because the big boys have these vice clauses in their limited partner agreements. They're not going to go after this industry, despite it being attractive, despite it being low risk, despite all of the goodness that can happen here, they're going to stay away because of structural impediments that they themselves put in. That's a fantastic place to go operate if you're trying to cut your teeth as a, as a first-time venture capitalist. And I'd imagine... You're going to get deal flow, and from listening to VCs on various podcasts, that's the biggest sort of thing that they thrive on. If you declare you're going to invest in this space, a CEO and CFO looking to raise money is going to find you, going to contact you, because it's not a crowded market of other VCs who are looking to fund that space. And and you're likely going to be able to fund at a more attractive valuation because mm -hmm. you're not competing against as many other funders. Yeah. So the, the same thing, Stephen, we, we could go through the payment processors. If we look at the folks who do service, iBill has historically been one of the largest who do service the adult content. Stephen, they charge 15 to 20% of every transaction. Straight charges three. So the opportunity to go build a payment processor here, there's a lot of room between 3% and 15%. Well, especially if the you risk, can make a brilliant business. Especially if, so you identified correctly, you know, maybe the risk of a cancel transaction is higher, but I would argue it's not 15 to 20%. So say it's higher than, you know, you can't build a business model at 3%. You might be able to build a business model of 5%. Right. You know, I'm, yep. I'd argue it's not 15 to 20. So as always, Jared, 12 episodes in, there's one consistent theme through all of our podcasts <laughs> that we have no <laughs> chance whatsoever of sticking to 30 minutes. Let, so let start, me wrap to bring us home. start to bring us home. So, so I, when I look at this industry, it is a phenomenal place to go build a, a, as a – as a sexual wellness company, it's a phenomenal place to build. As someone who's trying to do financing for this, whether it's venture capital, whether it's traditional bank financing, the like, uh, whether or not it's it's an advertising network, if it's a payment processor, this is a fantastic place to go build. 
We've seen Operation Choke Point end. We've seen advertisers, the MTA as, as one of the governing boards, slowly but surely start to move over. We've seen the beginning stages of a real venture capital industry start to emerge to fund these. It is a nascent space, despite being in the billions of dollars. It is growing rapidly. It has all of the attributes of a really attractive place to go build and to go finance. That's not to say there aren't remaining structural impediments. Dane being a real good example, they're fighting the good fight, but they're starting to win, Stephen. It's that building in a place that's small, that still has protection from big guys coming in, and yet has a rising tide underneath it. That is a phenomenally attractive place to go build a business, to go finance a business, to go process uh, services for a business. If I were a, a small venture capital firm, if I were trying to build a payment processor, if I were getting a banking license, or if I'm one of a new digital bank, this is an extremely attractive place to go operate. It is low risk, it is high revenue, it is high margin, and there's a huge barriers to entry simply because of historical overhang. That means you're going to have a nice playground operating and get big before other people come in and try and steal your cheese. So this will be the last episode of the Fat Town Thoughts because next week, Jared and I start Sex Ventures, a new hedge fund focused on this industry. Now, joking aside, fantastic summary as always, Jared. You've been listening to the Fat Town Thoughts podcast where Jared and I every week bring you an interesting perspective, we hope, on the makings of money, crypto, and fintech. If you like what you've heard, please click and subscribe. We're trying to bootstrap and get this podcast rolling, so please tell a friend. Uh, as always, the complaint department is Cleebeard on Twitter, at Cleebeard. That'll direct all of your negative comments towards Jared. If you've got something fantastic to say, please follow me, uh, at Stephen Dickens 3 on Twitter. But all joking aside, we'd love to engage and build an audience here around this content. As I say... Click and subscribe, and we'll speak to you next week. Thank you very much for listening.